This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of She Speaks Fire, Battling Shame, Reigniting Your Faith, and Claiming Your Purpose by spoken word poet Mariella Rosario and available everywhere audiobooks are sold. I was really, really hesitant about adoption, but I knew that something was changing when I started imagining Christmas morning with this new child. From Christianity Today, you're listening to Adopting Hope, a podcast about adoptive, foster, and spiritual mothering. I'm Joyce Koo Dowerpole. And I'm Sasha Parker. We're both moms, and we're both adoptive moms. And on each episode of our show, you'll hear from a mom and sometimes a dad about their journey in adoption and foster care. Our hope is that this podcast provides hope and encouragement as you hear these stories. Whether you're an adoptive, foster, or spiritual mother yourself— an adoptee, or someone who just wants to encourage and love adoptive and foster parents. These stories are all windows into the gospel, the story of a God who adopts us and loves us with a redeeming love, and whose love empowers and compels us to extend that love through the unique joys and challenges that come from adoption and foster care. Thanks for tuning in. We pray this encourages you as you listen. On today's episode, our guest is Dr. Russell Moore. Dr. Moore is the president of Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention, which is the public policy entity of the SBC. He's also the author of several books, including, perhaps most relevant to our listeners, Adopted for Life, The Priority of Adoption for Christian Families. His book, The Storm-Tossed Family, was Christianity Today's Book of the Year for 2019. In addition to his writing, Dr. Moore writes and speaks on a host of topics related to how Christians can live, witness, and influence the culture around them. And he has his own podcast, Signposts with Russell Moore. We are just so honored to have you on this podcast. And I know Sasha and I have both read your book, Adopted for Life, and there's so much in there we just would love to ask you about. But first of all, I would just love the listeners to be able to know a little bit more about your family. I know you've adopted two boys from Russia and also have five boys total. So just tell me a little bit about how old they are now and kind of a little bit about your adoption journey. Well, our oldest sons that we adopted from Russia are 19 now, and they were right at a year old, each of them were, when we adopted them. And then we have three sons who came along biologically, which we did not think was possible because we had been told after miscarriage after miscarriage after miscarriage that we wouldn't be able to carry children biologically. Mm -hmm. And so we had made peace with that and moved forward. And so when my now 15-year-old son, Samuel, uh, when my wife Maria became pregnant with him, when she told me she was pregnant, it was not the typical sense of gladness that normally people have. Instead, it was, oh, no, we're going through another miscarriage. Mm -hmm. And so we went through that for a long time, and Mm -hmm. she thought she was going through a miscarriage and went for a 
sort mm-hmm. of post-miscarriage follow-up doctor's visit. And they said, uh, wait a minute, there's a heartbeat here. And even then, mm-hmm. our, our reaction was, oh, no, it's not over yet. You know, we, we still have more of this grieving mm-hmm. to, to do. And it wasn't until mm-hmm. somewhere in the middle of month seven that we started to say, mm-hmm. wait a minute, maybe maybe uh, he's mm-hmm. actually going to, to get here. <laughs> so he's 15 now. And then wow. uh, and then two more came along after him. Oh, wow. Mm. How old are your other two boys now? Uh, Jonah is 14, just just turned 14 not long ago, mm. and um, uh, or 13, I'm sorry. I'm, uh, I always count toward the next year yeah. for whatever reason. <laughs> uh, but he's, he's 13, and Taylor is eight. So you have a very busy household with active boys and yeah. three teenagers, or four teenagers, Right. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Wow. We would love to hear more about your adoption journey and kind of how did you decide to adopt from Russia and you adopted two at the same time. So there's kind of a decision of some people are thinking about whether to adopt a sibling set, for instance. Tell me about your process, your and Maria's process in deciding that. Well, when we started the process, we did not know anyone who had adopted at all. I don't think there was anybody that we knew. And as a matter of fact, the only person that I really knew who had adopted or who had been adopted as a kid was someone we had learned that from. There was um, something called, uh, I don't know if it's still around, but Avon, where you know, people go door to door selling oh, yeah. uh, products. You know. And so the Avon lady, I remember being mm-hmm. in the house with us, with our mother and talking about someone that we knew. And she says in a whisper, uh, but she's adopted. Like this was a mm, shameful thing. Secret. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she said, but don't say anything because she doesn't know it. Mm-hmm. And I remember even as a, you know, 10 year old thinking, if the Avon lady knows this important thing about you and you don't, something's <laughs> yeah, well, this isn't right, the way yeah. it really should be working. But that mm. was that was all that we had. And so when we started looking into the adoption process, it all really, from a human perspective anyway, came about accidentally. My wife happened to go to a seminar at a church where she heard from an agency that happened to be doing a lot of work in in Russia. And at the time, there were age limits. I mean, we weren't old enough to adopt from China, I think was one of the places that we mm-hmm. couldn't adopt from. So it just seemed to, to work with Russia. And then in terms mm-hmm. of the two, that happened also from a human perspective accidentally because when we were doing our home study, they said what we want to do is to do a home study for two just in case something happens, hmm. get there and there are twins hmm. and we, we want to have you equipped to be able to do that. And then at some point in the process, I said to Maria, you know, I really hope there's two. It just it just dawned on me. Oh, I, wow. I still know right where I was when I thought, yeah, I hope there's two. And she said, well, that's kind of up to us. Hmm. And I said, let's huh. go for it. <laughs> and, so, wow. and so we did. And so that was just all, yeah. uh, all, all kind of uh, unpredictable. And so much, you know, we do kind of experience it in the moment from a kind of a human perspective, but God is obviously working, working in your heart to prepare you Mm. for two, for you to even be able to 
be ready and say that and for the social worker at the time to kind of have the foresight right. to prepare the home for two. Mm-hmm. And when we look back, we mm-hmm. can see the hand of God right. so clearly in that. So you went to Russia to get your boys. Was it two trips? It was two trips. Um, we, we had to take one trip to go appear in court and we were there for a little over a, a week and we were introduced to the boys, but then we had to leave Russia and come back and we didn't know when we would be called back. Oh, that must have been hard oh, to like not even know, <laughs> like to see yeah. them and not bring them home in the moment. Oh. Yeah, that was that was oh. May. Uh, and then we were called mm-hmm. back in July and we were there for mm-hmm. uh, close to a month. It was over three weeks going to the orphanage every day and just waiting for the yeah, we would appear in court, wait for the paperwork hmm. uh, to to go through before we could come home. Hmm. Well, what was it like to f- your first time stepping into that Russian orphanage? It must have been quite eye opening. And then, what was it like to meet your boys for the first time? It was surreal, and I often talk about the fact that what was most surreal to me is how quiet it was. Yeah, there were kids all through there, and you know, occasionally we would see. I remember there was a little girl who just sort of popped her head around a corner uh, at one point. But otherwise, we couldn't hear anything. And I I couldn't get that until somebody who's worked in this area mm-hmm. for a long time told me, you know, babies cry in order to get a response. And uh, after a while, when they're not getting a response, just because of the sheer, I mean, you don't have that many people working with that number of kids. Uh, they mm-hmm. don't get a response. They just stop crying. And so this person said, it was just really not that unusual to have quiet orphanages or, or other institutions mm-hmm. like that around the world. It is so sad. That was the thing that struck me uh, the most. The thing that strikes me probably the most now about meeting our, our two sons is how similar they were then to how they are now. And so, uh, you know, one of them was sillier and laughing and wanting to play all sorts of games. And one of them was sort of serious and taking everything in. And, and I mean, they're exactly the same people, <laughs> yeah, just, mm. just with adult uh, personalities now yeah. uh, from what they were then, which is, um, you know, I've come to see true, true of all of us. There's, there's a lot more continuity mm. uh, than, than we mm. predicted about those uh, who we were as, as children. And I love that you have, like, your boys now are 19, you Mm -hmm. said, and so that you kind of have, like, a a longer perspective than some of the people who have adopted and their kids are still young. Mm -hmm. So I would love for you to share a little bit about, as your adoptive kids grow older, you know, maybe their personality innately is sort of the same, but how they mature and their sense of themselves and questions about identity. One of the things that is striking to me is we adopted first. So we have both kids who who came along both ways, but we adopted first. And so we didn't know how hard it was. We just assumed this is just what parenting is like. So we had two Mm -hmm. one-year-old kids coming right out of an institution. They hadn't eaten solid food and mm-hmm. uh, it turns out if you haven't had any solid food and you're at that age and someone's trying to teach you to eat, it is the most traumatic and stressful experience for everybody involved. And so teaching mm-hmm. those kids to eat solid food is probably the hardest thing I've ever done. 
And it, at one point, Maria still laughs because at one point I just said, mm-hmm. oh, I suddenly get the milk to yeah. meat analogy from Hebrews. I mean, mm. This is fitting with me now. Mm. So it was it was very difficult, but we didn't know how difficult it was because we just assumed this was parenting. So when our first mm. child who came along biologically got here, one of the things that we kept saying to each other is this is so easy. You know, why do people complain about this? This is the easiest thing in the world because, <laughs> because we were accustomed to the mm. other. And I just kept saying, I'm mm-hmm. glad that it wasn't the other way around. Uh, because mm-hmm. this way, you know, we didn't know what we were doing, so we just did what we had to do. That's just normal to you, yeah, it's just right, normal right. to us. And so it was, it was a time when uh, there are all sorts of reasons why that time of life was frenetically busy and stressful, and we were just doing everything mm-hmm. we could to keep ourselves afloat. Mm-hmm. To the point that uh, now, during the pandemic time, one of the things that we've done. Mm-hmm is every night we're watching a television program together and it's lost <laughs> because mm-hmm. 15 years ago when the show was out, we didn't have time yeah. to see it. Right. So this, is, this is the first time uh, yeah. catching up on this after all that. Yeah, there's definitely periods of my life when I look back, mm-hmm. I can relate to that in that busy time of like mm-hmm. just having adopted where you do, you lose like mm-hmm. a sense of what's going on out right. in the world. You're just surviving. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then you come out of that to breathe right. a little bit. But there is that very difficult time mm-hmm. in the beginning. Yeah. Did you have support from the church then? Did you have community or people kind of helping carry some of the load? Because that is a huge transition to go from no children to two toddlers. And then with all the institutional issues that come along with that? We had a lot of support in terms of people who loved us and people who helped us, especially with the financial aspect Mm. of of adopting, because we had set out on this project uh, without having Mm. the means to do it. And Mm -hmm. people just came along with us and helped us. What we didn't have was a sense of community with people who had been in the situation mm-hmm. before, because again, we didn't know anybody mm-hmm. uh, who who had been. And so we were pioneers for mm-hmm. all of this. And there were all sorts of aspects of this that, you know, I made a lot of mistakes because I was assuming, well, I just need to parent better. And so I would take counsel and advice from people who were parenting children who were, you know, for for lack of a better word, in typical situations. Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. just, it isn't the same thing. No, no it's not the same. No. And right. so one of the most really helpful things for me as a parent, and, and we did not have a difficult time compared to people that we, uh, that we know later on mm-hmm. have, have had. But one of the most helpful things for me was, a friend of mine who's also an adoptive parent put me into contact with someone who's an expert on uh, children mm-hmm. who were in institutions. And mm-hmm. so she just called and I would say things to her like, this is what I'm dealing with. And her response was to say, yeah, that's no big deal. I see that all the time. <laughs> and it, it, it was mm-hmm. just really. And and so uh, mm-hmm. what she said uh, you know, you're you're not dealing with. I mean, because you don't know mm-hmm. uh, when, when you're dealing with something that's that's new to you. You're starting to think, well, does this? What have I done? And mm-hmm. what am I doing 
and mm-hmm. I don't know how to address this. And for, for her just to say, yeah, 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 I see mm-hmm. this, you know, you live through it. That was what I needed at the mm-hmm. moment. That must have been so comforting because as parents, you know, we have people watching us and you kind of just want to fix everything. But so many of these issues are just things that we need to. The Lord is working in our hearts as well and teaching us so yeah. much about grace upon grace upon grace and not, you know, trying to people please and just really being in tune with our children and loving them where they're at, which is what yeah. our father does with us. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's this crazy journey of we are being so sanctified in it and yeah. watching our children heal. Um, but we have to learn how to walk with them in a way that's helpful and not forceful. So it is so yeah. helpful to be connected with these experts that can teach us about the trauma. And we learned it, you know, with some of these classes that we had to take and all of that. But when you're in the thick of it, you just need someone to talk to. And yeah. 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 Who's mm-hmm. walked kind of the same road of, of parenting kids who've come from hard places mm-hmm. and trauma. Well, and you know, it helped me learning what we learned helped me to be a better parent mm-hmm. to the other children who came along. I think I'm a right. far better dad to yeah. my younger children than I was to my older children because I learned something about how individualized mm-hmm. different forms of relatedness need to be. Mm-hmm. So I, I remember I cringe. Maybe maybe everybody cringes when they hear <laughs> things that they said ignorantly in years past. Mm-hmm. But I think about I used to early on talk about uh, when I was speaking on parenting or something, I would very dismissively refer to this parenting expert that I mm-hmm. saw on television uh, one time talking about fits, mm-hmm. where, where he said, you know, if your child's throwing a fit in a public place, the child is trying to say something to you. And so get down on eye level with that child and repeat back uh, what he is saying to you so that he gets it. And I ridiculed that. You, know, you want a cookie. I'm hearing you that you want a cookie. And I, I said something like, you know, that kid's going to be 19 one day and the parent's going to be saying, you just robbed a liquor store. You just mm-hmm. robbed a liquor store. Well, I had no idea what it was that I was walking into. So one of our children is really high functioning, but on the autism spectrum. Mm. And so what I would initially see in terms of some some fits uh, of a kind that are very typical for kids who are on the spectrum and really have to do with a sense of trying to communicate and not being able Mm. to Mm-hmm. I would just see that in my mind as evidence that my parenting was failing. Mm. And and in talking to people, anybody would would tell you that. And so I, I remember being in a, a Walmart uh, one time with both of these kids at a year old, both of them throwing fits at the same time. And I remember looking around behind me mm-hmm. to see if anybody was watching me. Because, you know, sort of what was, it wasn't explicit, but what was going through my mind is, you know, if people Mm -hmm. see this, then they're going to say, well, this is how adopted kids act. Mm -hmm. And therefore, then they're not going to adopt and kids are going. So by the time my thought process went through, I had the whole global orphan crisis Mm -hmm. on my shoulders. (laughs) Oh, that's too much pressure. (laughs) It's too much pressure. And it also 
What sort of convicted me at the moment was that it was pride and it was mm-hmm. image keeping, mm-hmm. not not about what was best for them at the moment, but what was best about my image as a parent and mm-hmm. as a dad. And so yeah. that had to all go right. <laughs> if I was going to be able yeah. to love them. And then it had right. to go if I was going to be able to love the other kids uh, later on as well. Mm. That's right. That's I right. really connect with all of our adoptions with each one. So the Lord would kind of bring us to an even more broken place than we were when we adopted the one before, you know. So by the time we adopted our ninth child, the Lord really brought us to a place where it was like, seriously, Lord, you really think that we are equipped to do this? And, you know, we had to let go of kind of a lot of different things that we thought were important, um, but we entered in with a different form of humility. And yeah. I, I, my husband and I laugh because we kind of feel like we actually probably were the best parents ever <laughs> when we brought home our ninth and we were just kind of at the end and completely broken and in need of the Lord's just, you know, guiding us every moment. And so... Yeah. It's interesting how he brings us to those places. Um, Yeah. Well, and and some of it is just parenting generally, where Mm -hmm. I think that there's a sense at which at least a certain kind of parent is in a an almost adrenal state of alarm all the time over. You don't know how to distinguish between here are things that are problems that we need to deal with. And here is just life. Mm-hmm. And so after a while, I think you, you, you've you seen things before to the point that you're able to just let them go mm-hmm. <laughs> in right. a way that mm-hmm. it, it used to be that I think what I thought was, oh, you know, this is the, the baby of the family and this is somebody who's being spoiled. And of course, there are some cases where people do just sort of give up on parenting and, and you know, mm-hmm. but in a lot of cases, it's not that it's just that you have parents who are actually able to see what's going on and not mm-hmm. freak out. And I think that's so important to have a community of yeah. your if you're an adoptive or foster parent because you don't know you're comparing what's normal like you said earlier to like what's normal for like children in general maybe and so just having a a supportive community or others that you know who have adopted to walk alongside mm-hmm. or even like you did reach out to experts and specialists mm-hmm. um, who mm-hmm. can provide a perspective that we may not have on our own. Mm-hmm. Well, and one of the things that, that strikes me is that I realize that I was privileged in ways that most people are not just by the nature of the fact that I was working in the orphan care space all the time. I knew people from all over Mm -hmm. the country that that I could call. And and the only reason why I was able to talk to that expert, for instance, is because I knew somebody that I'd worked alongside with and and she was able to put us uh, together. But if not for that, I would have been in a situation where I wouldn't have had really any Mm -hmm. access to the outside world Mm-hmm. Including the fact that at the time you didn't have the ability with podcasts and, and, and other, you know, YouTube channels and other things mm-hmm. to sort of listen in on people's lives. That would have been a really lonely uh, sort of experience. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think you all were more of the pioneers adoption 
the landscape of adoption has changed so much and there right. there's so many more resources out there today. Right. And maybe you could even like share some of the resources out there now that may be helpful for for others going through this. And I, I definitely love, I plug your book for all of our listeners mm. um, and there's an updated version of Adopted for Life. And are there other resources that you would recommend, Dr. Moore? Well, I think that the great thing about right now is that there are resources that are specific to all of the different contingencies. So there are some things that are written to adopting parents or foster parents generally, but then there are so many things that are are written to people who have kids with various attachment disorders or people who are adopting kids later of, of older ages Uh, which brings with it a different set of issues or resources for parents who have children with specific kinds of trauma that are different from others. So I think now there's an ability to search out and to find all sorts of things. And I think the other thing that has changed in a healthy way is when I was starting out in this, I was always balancing everything because what I wanted to, to say is this is difficult. And so mm. don't do this because you want to grow your family or, or whatever. Mm. You, you have to be ready to do this. And this is, this is going to be difficult, but this is worth it. And, and there's joy in this. And so I would want to be constantly sort of balancing that in a way where I didn't want to talk about the joy of adopting in a way that would prompt someone to adopt who shouldn't be adopting. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to talk about the difficulties that come along with it in a way that would cause somebody to become discouraged or or, or scared who God was calling to adopt. Mm -hmm. And so I think now uh, there's a better, a a more full-orbed sense of that that's available for for people. Yes, difficult, but, but joyful too. Not everybody is going to be called to adopt or foster, but I believe that all of us as the church, we are called to care for the orphan and the widow in in some way, kind of a, I think you might talk about it in your book in terms of kind of a developing a culture in our churches that care for the the orphan. So it's much more expansive than just adopting a child into your home or so, you know, and so I'm wondering how to think about this as a believer. How do we think about adoption? And it's so obviously connected with the gospel that we've all been adopted as his, as his children, as God's children. And so it gives us a deeper understanding of the gospel. So I'm wondering if you could talk about that and how as Christians, we can, can think about adoption and how that affects our responses as believers. Well, I think that we we kind of get this in some categories already. So, for instance, the Great Commission is given to the entire church, and uh, every believer is called to take the gospel to the nations and to bear witness to Christ. There's, there's no one who's exempt from the Great Commission. But there's a diversity of gifts, and there are different callings that are uh, available there. And so we, we wouldn't suggest to the 89-year-old woman with Alzheimer's in her nursing home that she's not equipped to bear witness to Christ because she can't be 
a continent traveling evangelist. No, she's, she's got a calling to bear witness mm-hmm. to Christ in the place where God has put her. Mm-hmm. And, and, and everybody is called to bear witness to Christ, even though not everybody has that specific gift of evangelism in the, in the same way. We kind of get that when it comes to that. We get to right. it that every, we, we get it that every Christian is called to worship, but not everybody is called to write songs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or to lead in instrumental worship. We, we get that all of those things sort of fit together. And I think the same thing is true in the way that uh, Jesus has called us to love and, and care for vulnerable people. Mm-hmm. So some of it is going to be in saying, how has God specifically gifted me in order to, to care for vulnerable people? And some of it is going to be serendipitous. You know, mm-hmm. it, it, when when Jesus gives the the story of you know what we call the the good Samaritan, it's not that you have a Samaritan who had set out and planned his life as a Jericho Road uh, rescue society. He he encounters this person in the moment, mm-hmm. beaten, and he has mercy on him. And so mm-hmm. some of it is going to be that way too. And so what what I try to say to people when it relates to caring for widows and orphans is you, you don't have to necessarily right now know, here's what God is calling me to do. I think the, the key to it is simply to say, God, you have called us to care for widows and orphans and strangers and help me to know how mm. and help me to know who. I mean, the problem is not that we don't have the answers to those questions. The problem is that we're not asking those questions. And mm-hmm. if you start to ask the questions, it's, you know, uh, to quote Alan Jacobs on another matter, but the diagnosis is the cure. <laughs> you, you realize this and then you're able, then you have this openness to it. Mm-hmm. And some of that is going to mean that you're going to, just as we do with any other aspect of calling, you're going to start out doing things that you realize I'm not gifted at. Mm-hmm. This isn't where my gifting is, and so I'm not going to do that. I mean, that that's not failure. That's how we learn mm-hmm. what our gifts are. And then there are going to be other things where I often think about there's a, there's a line in Marilyn Robinson's novel, Gilead, where she's mm-hmm. quoting uh, the elderly pastor, uh, Ames, who talks about every person that he encounters – what he says to himself internally is, what is the Lord asking of me? And I think if you start to have that mentality, then God is going to put those things in front of you. So for some people, you're going to be called to adopt or foster, and you're going to start to have a sense where, what I tell people often is, if that's the case, one of the places where you'll start to see it is in the imagination. And that that certainly mm-hmm. was the case with me. Mm-hmm. That may be just be kind of the way I'm wired. But I've seen mm-hmm. that with other people. I was really, really hesitant about adoption. But I knew that something was changing when I started imagining Christmas morning with mm-hmm. this this new child. Mm-hmm. Adoption is filled with a lot of joy, but also a lot of pain. And you often just see joy and sorrow intertwined. And how have you and your family kind of navigated that and not just, you know, try to 
pushed it under the rug, like, oh, we're, we're a happy family now. What are some truths that you have instilled in your boys, you and Maria, just even about identity and ways to kind of help cope with the grief and the loss that our children have experienced? Well, I think that one of the things that I learned was I wrongly uh, at the very beginning assumed if something happens to you when you're too young to remember it, Mm. then it didn't really happen Mm. to you. I mean, I I wouldn't have worded it that way, but Mm -hmm. but I think that was the the unspoken assumption that I had. Mm. And so how do you, none of us remember what life was like when we were nine months old. And so how are you then going to grieve a loss for something that that you never had? Well, I was wrong in that, mm-hmm. in, in terms of brain development, in terms of everything else. Mm-hmm. And so we never had the sort of thing that some people have where, uh, you know, our sons have never been, uh, you know, some people, their children are, they really express a sense of loss about birth parents or the place where they were born. And we never mm-hmm. really experienced much of that, at least in an explicit way. But mm-hmm. what we did experience really early on, and again, that expert was helpful to me in this. With, mm-hmm. with one of our kids, there was a, not a serious situation, but just a persistent sort of lack of discipline uh, issue. And she said, I think that what he is trying to do is to see how far he can push you before you leave. Mm-hmm. Because he wants to go ahead and get it over with if it's going to happen. Wow. And she said, your main issue is not this, you know, in the scheme of things, not even important issue. Your issue is to say, is to communicate to him, no matter what you do, mm-hmm. I'm still going to be here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, with us, it was a minor situation, but with some people, it's really major. I sort of learned in that, not just is that is that the situation here, but that's sort of the kind of thing that I will find myself doing in subtle sorts of ways in life, yeah. uh, where I'm yeah. thinking to myself, you know, if I'm going to be abandoned or rejected, let's just get it over with. I mean, so mm-hmm. I think that I kind of learned something about a deeper sense of identity and mm. trauma and everything else mm-hmm. that, that isn't even adoption specific. Right. Um, so I think that that's, that's just one of the things I think that you, you learn. And what, what happens is I think for any parent or any foster parent, when you start to realize, oh, here's a piece that I, I missed. And so I wasn't able to address it in the right way. There's a tendency to want to then be very self-judgmental mm-hmm. and instead of to say, well, wait a minute, this is actually how relationships of any sort work mm-hmm. is you start to discover the mystery of the other person mm-hmm. and you start to realize, how do I love this person? Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that's what happens in a marriage. That's mm-hmm. what happens in a friendship. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's what happens in parenting. And that's not something you just have to know if you've adopted or fostered. It it maybe is more uh, obvious to you, but you have to know it in terms of parenting generally. So I was worried about adoption because 
I said, I think it'll just be so unpredictable. We don't know who we're going to get. And now I look back on that and think, oh, you idiot. That has <laughs> nothing to do with whether it's yeah. adoption or, or biological. Right. And so I've got one child, biological child, who is more prone to worry and who needs more reassurance. Mm-hmm. Everything's going to mm-hmm. everything's gonna be all right. And then I've got another who's much calmer and much more placid and sort of needs to be more encouraged. Uh, you know, let's let's take something on. Mm-hmm. You know, that's different. Mm-hmm. And you just have to learn how to love each other yeah. and don't beat yourself up over the ways that you haven't seen that mm-hmm. uh, yeah. before. Just learn it. Right. And it's never too late. I kind mm-hmm. of feel like that's what redemption is about mm-hmm. in forgiveness. It's yeah. never too late. Yeah. Parenting is a journey. It is. Um, mm-hmm. And we're constantly learning. Well, and one of the things that mm-hmm. I think God taught me in this, I was talking to someone a little while ago who, when her daughter was really little, this mother was really into making sure that everything was healthy. And so uh, there was never going to be little Debbie cakes or Pop-Tarts mm-hmm. around the house. And everything was about the proper amount of fruit and vegetables and so forth. And, and then when her daughter became older, she had an eating disorder mm. and the mother was blaming herself. Mm. Maybe I emphasized health too much. And so my first way that I wanted to address that was to come in and say, that's not how eating disorders happen. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not, it's not because of, you know, th- th- there are all sorts of people who have eating disorders who grew up in every kind of situation mm-hmm. when it came to what was on the dinner plate. That's not how it happens. But after that, I started to realize one of the things that was most helpful to me whenever I've looked back in any area of life and said, you know, what did I do that was a mistake mm-hmm. that has led to this? You know, and I'm not talking about, you know, there there are trauma creating issues. Mm-hmm. That's not what I'm talking right. about. I'm talking about this looking back and saying, I, why didn't I see this mm-hmm. when it was happening? And what someone said to me in one of those instances is, let's just assume for a minute the worst case scenario. And that everything here is your fault. What then? Mm. And that actually was what I needed Mm. to hear at the moment. And so I just said to her, look, I don't think that the fact that you were buying organic ketchup had anything to do Mm -hmm. with the fact that your daughter has an eating disorder. But if it were, what would you do? Mm. You wouldn't go look for time travel technology. Mm. What you would do is to love your daughter mm-hmm. while she's addressing a medical situation mm-hmm. that's treatable mm-hmm. and and assure her, I'm here with you and I love you yep. and we're going to mm-hmm. get this treatment together yeah. and we're going to get through to the mm-hmm. other side. Yes. You know, and I, I think that's yeah. what we all need to kind of yeah. do. And that brings us to the message of hope. Yeah, it does. Some of the greatest healing has taken place in our children's lives when they have seen us as parents kind of mess up or... You know, and when we can admit that and when there's that humility, they see that this relationship isn't based on performance or Mm -hmm. if you do this, this and this, then you're safe here. And when they see that we are all on the same level, we're entering in, we're not above them. We're brothers, we're parents, but we're also brothers and sisters in Christ. And there's something really powerful that happens in the healing of Mm -hmm. a family when, when a father can admit their mistakes or a mother can, and there's just humility. That's been a really 
painful place, but actually a really powerful place of healing in in our lives. And you know why that's so important, Mm -hmm. too, is because um, eventually, Mm -hmm. eventually everybody's going to realize, wait a minute, Mm -hmm. my mom and dad were sinners Mm -hmm. and were ignorant in a lot of things. Mm -hmm. Everybody's going to realize that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so uh, the, the question is, when they discover this, mm-hmm. and if they discover this by parents who are repenting mm-hmm. and humble mm-hmm. and willing mm-hmm. to extend and receive forgiveness, that's a very different thing mm-hmm. than if they grow up assuming, well, my parents have everything together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they think at some point that they've seen sort of a Wizard of Oz mm-hmm. kind of behind the veil sort of situation mm-hmm. where then they say, well, was any of this real? Mm-hmm. You know, and mm-hmm. it's the same thing. I mean, that's the that's the case with uh, with churches. The people that I know who are healthy Christians, almost none of them were in churches that were certain about their own holiness and and mm-hmm. uniformity mm-hmm. And, yes. and and all of those things. They were with churches that were saying we're we're following Jesus mm-hmm. and we're making some mistakes and we're going to need to forgive one another and and there are here are some things we know mm-hmm. and then here are some things that we might be wrong about. You know, uh, those are the sorts of places yeah. where people actually end up healthy later yeah. on. Yeah. yeah. So being a teachable parent is a really healthy sign. Yeah. That's a teachable yeah. And, yeah. and humble. Yeah. I feel like so much of us has put so much pressure on our, yeah. ourselves. Like the way our kids turn out is a reflection of our parenting mm. and so forth. But, right. you know, when we see that, like, God loves our kids mm. mm-hmm. so much. Mm-hmm. And he has, you know, put these children, these precious children with us. Mm. Um, and he's in charge, uh, mm. too, of of this whole, he's parenting us, he's shepherding us as we mm. shepherd our children. Um, and he's there to, to pick us up and we're there to pick up pick up mm-hmm. our kids and mm-hmm. and we yeah. we're on this journey together yeah. that's what the gospel is about mm-hmm. yeah 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 when you first wrote this book it was in 2009 and that was kind of when a lot of people were adopting kids and it was kind of a big movement and now so many years later you know there's probably a lot of people with teenagers now <laughs> and mm-hmm. What words of hope or encouragement would you offer to families that might even be kind of in a place that they never imagined or just in the thick of it? Yeah, what words would you offer? Well, what what I say to to people all the time is to say, just put aside the adoption question or the foster care question for a minute. Uh, Think about how the teenage years, we, we can all remember our teenage years. This is a difficult time Mm -hmm. for every human being and difficult in different sorts of ways. And so I think one of the most important things is to not panic. And uh, what I I say to people all the time, and I wish that there had been people around to say it to me, is to say, you know what? 15 is a lot better than 12, 13, 14 you know, in almost mm-hmm. every situation. Because if you start to realize that 12, 13, 14 is just because of the hormonal shifts and the social shifts and the expectation mm-hmm. shifts, and then if you add any trauma in that, mm-hmm. all of that as well, it, it's difficult for everybody. And so I would spend a, a lot of the time with our oldest two when they were in that time, 
just sort of in this alert all the time. Oh no, what does this mean? Now I'm at a place where I can say to, you know, the ones who are coming along later, look, as I said to one of my sons, there are some people who are nostalgic for their college years and some people who are nostalgic for their high school years. There's nobody nostalgic for middle school. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Middle school is awful for everybody, but it gets better. And we're, we're here with you. Uh, we're here with you through it. And I, I think that really does apply even beyond that, is that what you're wanting to do in those teenage years is to not take every aspect of individuation personally. That process of leaving father and mother, it, it requires a lot of sorting through who am I as opposed to them. Mm-hmm. And so if you if you just uh, recognize that and don't get thrown by all of it, then I think it's it's really helpful. And sometimes when you look at particularly when it comes to those questions of identity that can come through adoption or foster care, there are some parents who become panicked when, you know, their daughter says, I really want to find my birth mother. And some parents will receive that as, well, that's a rejection of me. Or a child who starts to say, I, I don't agree with you on these things. Well, that's it's expressing itself, particularly in an adoption context, but it's not adoption specific. Right. That's the process that everybody mm-hmm. sort of goes through and most people come through it just fine. Mm-hmm. And so don't panic. Yeah. No, that's really encouraging. And I thought maybe we could end with, there's a part in your book, Adopted for Life, where you talk about a gift that your mother-in-law gave you. Do you know what I'm talking about? Mm -hmm. She had, uh, when we went to the orphanage in Russia, what was coming through to me was how decrepit it was. Mm. And I mean, I I was almost walking into there like a county public health agency inspector Mm. and saying, oh, this is uh, is not up to code. Pavement and the sidewalk outside was all cracked up and, and even worse on the inside. But what she did was to just lean down and pick some wildflowers that were growing up through the cracks in the sidewalk. And she pressed them into this really beautiful framed picture that we have Mm -hmm. uh, over our dining room table right now. There was beauty Mm -hmm. coming through Mm -hmm. uh, all the cracks there that I wasn't paying attention to Mm -hmm. because I was just looking at uh, what was alarming to me. And yet Mm -hmm. what Jesus taught us, take no thought of tomorrow, look at the lilies of the field. Mm -hmm. They neither toil toil nor nor sow, but they're they're there Mm -hmm. and they're cared for. That reminds Mm. me of that. Mm. That's very encouraging. Such a good way to end. Thank you so much, Dr. Moore. Thank you so much. And blessings to you and your work. Thank Thank you. You too and your ministry. If you're enjoying our show, please take a moment and help us spread the word. Share about it on social media or leave us a rating and review on iTunes. It really helps people find the show. Adopting Hope is a production of Christianity Today. It was produced by Mike Cosper, Joyce Dalrymple, and Sasha Parker. It was edited and mixed by Alex Carter. Our theme song, We've Got This Hope, was by Ellie Holcomb. We'll be back next week with another story. Thanks for listening.
手。